The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Now I'm delighted that we have Professor Brendan O'Leary with us, Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania and also Queen's University Belfast. He has written a really interesting book, Making Sense of a United Ireland, which, Brendan, I think it's fair to say is a topic more people are talking about as a possibility, indeed for some a probability. How do you? How likely is it we will be asked to decide on the question at some stage in the next decade? I think it's highly probable. I, in the book, I make an argument for why twenty thirty is the likely and most prudent first date for a referendum. Um, I think it's true that my book is part of a wave of discussion. It's not a singular um, action and that gives me some comfort that I'm part of the zeitgeist rather than um, uh, somebody with making an odd set of arguments. The central argument of the book is the necessity of preparation before the referendums. And that's partly inspired by the disastrous British referendum of 2016, which, as everybody in Ireland is familiar with, uh, led to a very clear definition of what remain would mean, but there was no clear definition of what leaving would mean. And that had subsequent disastrous consequences for the UK as they, they didn't come to blows, but it was close over what to do about the result. So in my view, it's vital that if there are referendums in in future, that they're clearly defined options. Although ironically, that very referendum seems to have accelerated the move towards a potential united Ireland. I agree. And uh, the disastrous decisions about the style of leaving the European Union, I think, has deeply weakened both unions, the Union of Great Britain, in which Scotland is in partnership with England and Wales, and the Union of Great Britain with Northern Ireland. Now, the demographic shifts in Northern Ireland are essential to the Good Friday Agreement's trigger of a referendum. What do you see happening in relation to the demographic movements? Very slow incremental change has been at work since at least um, the middle of the 1980s possibly earlier, because the census of 1981 was subject to a boycott. A slow incremental growth in the cultural Catholic population, matched by a slow incremental fall in the cultural Protestant population, all modified by a slight increase in the number of new Northern Irish from elsewhere. That pattern is continuing, and if you take the 2011 census... Uh, which is the census of a decade ago, and extrapolate forward 20 years when all the children who were zero or uh, up to 18 in the uh, 2011 census have become eligible to be voters. Uh, At that juncture, the majority in the Northern Ireland electorate are likely to be non-Protestants. And that will be the first occasion in the history of Northern Ireland where the future of Northern Ireland is outside of the destiny or or control of the local Protestant community. I'm interested that you use the phrase cultural Catholic and cultural Protestant because clearly there has been this enormous shift on this island away from religious observance. Yes. Uh, People still maybe declare themselves as being of a particular religious faith but may not necessarily be observant. We have seen as well that the laws in the Republic are no longer dictated by a Catholic morality or ethos. So should we assume that 
just because somebody is a Catholic nominally in Northern Ireland that they will want and desire a united Ireland? No, we shouldn't make that as, as, uh, assumption. But what we can say quite confidently that you, is that you're far more likely to vote nationalist if you're of a cultural Catholic formation and you're conversely, you're much more likely to vote unionist if you're of a cultural Protestant formation. As we know on this island, both national uh, identity and religious identity historically have been fused. It is true that there's a... Uh, a significant section of the Northern Ireland electorate, the others, who refuse to identify as nationalist or unionist. And some of those are um, ex-Protestant, some are ex-Catholics. Uh, but even when you explore them in some depth, the cultural Catholics are the ones who are more likely to favour a united Ireland, the cultural Protestants more likely to favour the union. But in that grouping, the most common preference is don't know. And one of the things that's going to happen over the next decade, I think, is that section of people who currently don't know, who include large numbers of women, six times as many women are, uh, as men are likely to uh, say they don't know or that they've changed their mind on the question. The focus will come on those voters who will be the swing voters in a referendum. But has partition of a century ago eventually led to the creation of a new sense of identity, of being Northern Irish rather than being Irish or British. Yes, but not as much as you'd imagine. So it's clear that um, the others and SDLP voters are more likely to identify as Northern Irish, whereas Sinn Féin voters are more likely to identify as Irish. And Unionist voters are more likely to say they're British. Sometimes they'll say they're Northern Irish or sometimes Irish and British. So there are shifts. We can't be totally confident about these results because we weren't asking these questions in surveys in the 1960s and the 1950s. But yes, there is a distinct Northern Irish identity held by some. Your book is about preparation, yes, as you say, and for good reasons you explained as a result of the Brexit referendum. But is there a danger as well that we make assumptions about an automatic vote in favour in the Republic for a united Ireland, that maybe for emotional reasons, sentimental reasons as much as anything else, that we would have an expectation that people would vote yes to united Ireland without perhaps understanding fully what it might bring about? That's possible. Um, I, th I think it's absolutely important to understand that as a result of the Good Friday Agreement, the South has a veto over Irish reunification. Um, Southerners, by a majority, can decide they don't want Irish reunification. Although there that will, would be unlikely, wouldn't it? Um, it? I think it is unlikely. I think the um, there is a majority for Irish reunification in most um, polls and surveys, particularly outside of the Dublin region. So as long as that demographic balance stays in play, I, I expect there to be a positive vote in favour in the South. But... We do know from elsewhere, and that's part of the, the book's argument, you have to look carefully at other cases of unifications. In the case of Cyprus, the U UN uh, sponsored referendums in northern Cyprus and southern Cyprus in 2004. Northern Cyprus, overwhelmingly uh, dominated by Turkish Cypriots, voted in favour of reunification with the promise of uh, becoming part of the European Union. Southern Cyprus voted no uh, to the 
uh, astonishment of the UN. And one of the reasons that happened was because a lot of conditions were attached to reunification, which made southern Cypriots unhappy. They felt that they were sacrificing the stability of their state for a potentially unworkable federation. So that has to be borne in mind by southern policymakers. What will be the model of Irish reunification? Will southerners still recognise their state in the expanded Ireland? Or will they be, for, for various reasons, put off the idea of unification? Yeah, because there's three things that jump out of me there initially in relation to that. And one is very much, you know, would we expect that we are to be joined, that we have a state that we regard as been successful so that the six counties of Northern Ireland would simply be merged onto that. But other things arise from that. What about the fear that some people express out of the border that it would be too costly for us, that the economic costs would not be worth bearing? Also, is there a danger that we would fear terrorism by those who would feel disenfranchised as part of this new arrangement? that uh, Irish people in the Republic might be against the idea for fear that unionists or loyalists will cause violence? Three good questions. So I have to give uh, a three-pronged answer. Take uh, your time. For the, the first part of the answer, at the moment, according to the Irish Constitution and according to the Good Friday Agreement, there are only two feasible models of a united Ireland. I can justify that at length if you want. And they are a persisting Northern Ireland inside a United Ireland in which you transfer the existing arrangements of the Good Friday Agreement and you have a power-sharing government in Belfast, hopefully one that would function, inside a United Ireland. That's one possibility because of Article 15 of the Irish Constitution which allows uh, the Oireachtas to recognise a subordinate legislature. So that's one option. Many Irish people at the moment are unfamiliar with that as a, as a viable constitutional option. The second is the classically understood model of a united Ireland, the disappearance of Northern Ireland as an entity and the incorporation and integration of the six counties. Six plus 26 equals 32. Those two models have very different implications for Irish unification and they need to be thought about. Clearly, the devolved model is more likely to be preferred by Ulster Protestants, given an unpalatable choice, they'd prefer the persistence of Northern Ireland. But when, with my colleague John Gary, we investigated this carefully in small deliberative forums, we found that on deliberation, many, many, but not all, Ulster Protestants changed their mind. Their arguments went roughly like this. Uh, first of all, power-sharing isn't working inside a devolved government in Northern Ireland, inside the UK. Why is it going to work any better in the Republic? And their second judgment was that if they were part of a united Ireland, they would be roughly between a seventh and a sixth of the electorate. And they might be able to play a decisive role in coalition formation. And many of them might prefer that to being a minority inside the North governed by a potentially nationalist majority in the North, as well as being governed by a nationalist majority in Ireland as a whole. So that's answer to the first question. Then talk to me about the economics. So two things are very important here. One is the Republic is radically wealthier than it used to be. 
Uh, the Republic of Ireland per capita is richer than Germany uh, is today. I'm sorry, I just intervened there. The, traditionally, an awful lot of unionists saw us as effectively a peasant-ridden state and they saw themselves economically as been far better off as part of the UK. They did. Uh, and they weren't totally inaccurate in thinking that way. But there's been a, a complete reversal of comparative prosperity on the island. Uh, not only is the Republic dramatically wealthier than the North, southern productivity levels are 40% higher than those in the North. So the South is a dynamic and productive economy, wealthier than Germany was when Germany reunified, wealthier than Germany is today. Northern Ireland is wealthier than East Germany was when it reunified with, with Germany, and it's wealthier than most parts of East Germany today. So in principle economics of reunification are not impossible. Second important point, people grossly exaggerate the level of the British subvention of Northern Ireland, as it's called. That is the gap between what is raised in Northern Ireland in taxation and what is allegedly spent there by the UK exchequer. If you examine the figures carefully, and this has been done by several of my colleagues in what's called ARINs, analysing and researching Ireland, North and South. If you examine the official data, it's problematic on both counts. First of all, more taxes raised in Northern Ireland than people realise because VAT is collected in London uh, headquarters and not attributed to Northern Ireland. And secondly, a lot of the expenditures are not expenditures that would take place in a United Ireland. So um, in a United Ireland, we're not going to be contributing to the costs of the British diplomatic service. We're not going to be contributing to Trident uh, nuclear weapons. We're not going to be contributing to the same scale of public defence. When you do this carefully, when you scrutinise the subvention, you can come to reasonable estimates of the net costs of the subvention on day one. And they're approximately 0.75% of Ireland's GDP. Not trivial, but not a rounding, uh, but, but close to a rounding error. Um, so we shouldn't exaggerate the costs of reunification. Uh, that doesn't mean there won't be costs. And I argue in the book that it's important to have a, a sovereign uh, unification fund. What about the fear, though, of terrorism, of bombs going off in the Republic from dissident loyalists? That's uh, an entirely legitimate fear. There are two ways to deal with, with that fear. First of all, it must be important that the prospective United Ireland is prepared in such a way that those with a British identity and those who are Ulster Protestants can be confident of their rights. And that includes their British citizenship rights, which are part of the Good Friday Agreement. There are lots of positive reassurances that the Republic can organise now, including in modifying legislation, to make a United Ireland look more hospitable than it did historically. But then Ireland also has to be prepared for a law and order problem. So there is a danger of a loyalist insurrection. Now, with that danger, you have to ask two questions. One is, what is the objective of that insurrection? Is it an attack on the Republic in order to create an independent Northern Ireland? Is it an attack on the Republic in order to try and influence the referendum? What's the objective? Now, if the objective is an independent Northern Ireland, 
I think they will have very little support inside their own community. Uh, if the objective is to damage the prospects of the referendum being passed, that's a real danger. And of course, that has to be addressed. And the way to address that is to have good intelligence on loyalist paramilitary organizations and to spend the rest of this decade together with the British government in dealing with residual paramilitarism on both sides of, of the border. But I'm not going to pretend that that fear is unreal. That's, that's a real fear and it has to be addressed. One last thing, Brendan O'Leary, and I've gone way over the time I've been allocated, but I am fascinated by this. One of the impacts of partition has been that other than in the border regions, an awful lot of people in the south have become almost divorced from the reality of Northern Ireland or have no interest in it. Unless they're involved in the GAA or other national organisations, their contact with the north may be actually very limited. There are so many people listening here in the Republic who may never even have been north Indeed. of the border. How much of a problem could that be in actually creating a new United Ireland? It, it, it could be a, a serious problem if Nordies, as they're sometimes called, were to experience um, estrangement and universal hostility in the rest of the island, that would not be uh, productive. I think it's very important over the next decade that as much as possible there should be intra-island tourism in both directions. Uh, southerners should go north, northerners should go south. That should be encouraged. We should improve, uh, as a matter of principle, our shared infrastructure in terms of travel to make it easier for people to visit. Um, I think a long period of uh, censorship and a long period of experiencing the North as simply a site of irrational violence has created the kinds of attitudes that you refer to. But it is going to be very shortly 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement. We've had a very substantively successful peace process. I think it is possible to build a better and more interconnected uh, island. Making Sense of a United Ireland is the book by Brendan O'Leary. Brendan, thank you very much for being with us here on The Last Word. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.